I know this is a fashion podcast, but my guest this week speaks to nearly everything in and around this world. Let me pause for one moment. Do you ever stop to think about how or why you like the things you like? I don't mean to get existential, but as an avid reader and obsessive of music and culture over the years, there are a handful of people who I've genuinely admired. One of those is Matthew Schnipper. If you're not familiar with him, he kind of prefers it that way. But Matthew has been the person helping shape the music and culture scene for the past decade. He's a former editor at The Verge and GQ, former editor-in-chief of the legendary magazine The Fader, and recently executive editor of Pitchfork. Man, this is one of my favorite conversations in years. It's Blamo. I'm Jeremy Kirkland. My guest this week is writer and editor Matthew Schnipper. Matthew and I discuss growing up sick and sad in the suburbs, naming his son after punk legend Henry Rollins, continuing to pursue a dream after rejection, and why he loves discovering and sharing new music. Rowing Blazers, the irreverent, vintage-inspired New York brand worn by the likes of Timothy Chalamet, Russell Westbrook, is launching its fall-winter 2020 collection, and it's a tribute to Princess Diana and the early 80s. Look, this is basically everything we all want right now. Rowing Blazers is a brand I've been in awe of since they launched, and a true example of creating their own lane in the fashion world. This new collection includes 80s-inspired French terry sweats and tees, deep pile Sherpa jockey fleeces, rugby shirts inspired by climbing culture and Dutch student societies. The collection also includes collaborations with several British designers closely associated with the late Princess of Wales. And as usual, lots of amazing collabs launching too. Right now, Rowing Blazers is offering 10% off for Blamo listeners. Just enter promo code BLAMO at checkout for 10% off your order. That's rowingblazers.com and enter BLAMO at checkout for 10% off your order. Are you close with your parents? I am close with my parents. That's a good question. Um, I'm very different than my parents. and In what way? I'm a very emotional person. I am... I think that would probably be the main one. I'm a very emotional person. (laughs) Okay. You know, I have a love of music and the arts really drove who I was, a love of writing. Where did you grow up, just as an aside? Mostly in Connecticut. Um, My dad worked for ESPN for most of his career. uh, We headquartered in a town called Bristol, Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. We grew up about 20 minutes away from Bristol in the suburbs. Okay. Uh, I, we were born in, in the city we, uh, in Manhattan, and I think my parents didn't expect to have twins. They knew before we were born, of course, but they were like, oh, oh no. I mean, nobody really expects to have twins, I guess, but it was their plan was to have one kid and live in this Upper West Side apartment till the, you know, the end of time. Right. It became not really feasible with um, a son and a daughter of the right. same age. So when my dad got an opportunity to move out to the suburbs for this job, he, he took it. So Yeah. So... So you're emotional, you're into the arts. Yeah, I think I, 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 was, I was just sadder than my parents, you know, and I think my way of communicating with, with people was a little bit more, it was more direct. I had a lot more kind of like, um, like curiosity and like empathy and sadness, I guess. Um, Where do you think that came from? Being sick, I think started it. You know, both my parents grew up, I think, you know, um, in my parents' lives also changed pretty drastically in the time that I was alive. Um, you know, I think the main difference, which I'm not sure how much they think about, um, you know, what was, I mean, essentially it was class. I think they started off, they were both, you know, families, uh, both children of um, working class parents, um, you know, were pretty solidly middle class. My mom was a nurse at Sloan Kettering. My dad was a union lawyer. Um and then their their careers changed and um and their lives changed a bit with it. I don't think that they changed their like styles of living very much or who they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh I think in a in an extremely charming way. I think like my parents like they don't, you know, my my dad is like constantly trying to get me to buy like a Kirkland no, there we go, Kirkland stuff, you know, like he's like do you need some shirts like from Costco, you know, and it's like I'm good, you know. He's like, I'm sending you like 7,000 pounds of walnuts or whatever. And it's like, you know, that's kind of like how my parents, um, 
or live, or live in cashews actually I, I like cashews um, oh there you go <laughs> yeah um but i think like there's sort of there was access to things that came you know like travel and other things that came with some of the privilege that they ended up getting kind of later in life and it was interesting as a kid to kind of watch that um um that trajectory i think but for me also um i'm just i think a bit more wide-eyed than either of my parents kind of ever wore um you know i'm i'm often entertained and excited by kind of anything so yeah well i mean let's jump let's jump to that because i think you know, there was there was a gajillion reasons why I wanted you to have on wanted to have you on the show. I mean, from the fact that as an aside, you've worked at every, you know, I'm gonna air quote like cool and hip place um <laughs> in terms of like the publishing and the music world. I mean, when you think of tech, I mean, dude, you're editor in chief of the fader, like you I mean you were to do that, yeah. Yeah. I mean you 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 know, your, your resume is like a, like a hall of fame hit list. I mean, it's, no, it's very nice of you to say, no, I'm serious. And so, but the cool part is too, is you've, you've touched at all these points of culture that I think everyone identifies with more than ever, uh, in terms of like the, the kind of hybrid of like tech and music and fashion and, and that stuff. But you, you know, one thing that I've, I've kind of noticed so many people, and we talk about this a ton on the pod is there's this love for hardcore and punk rock and all of these people have that have like been into the hardcore scene. They've kind of woven their way, you know, into this, into publishing, into that and writing, you know, where did that come from? Cause you were in your article that you were talking about in GQ I mean, you were a massive Rollins fan. Yeah. So, you know, the story I wrote today was essentially about, you know, my son's name is Renzo Rollins Schnever. Um, and it, the story, the, you know, the ostensibly the story is about how my son got his name, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is basically Italian first name, which is, you know, my wife's, my wife, she's from the Upper East Side, but she's Italian by a yeah. hundred million percent Italian. <laughs> um, and then, you know, my ethnicity, which I guess is, is hardcore. Um, oh, I just really <laughs> wearing a, a Rollins shirt right now, which I guess is like, there's a good like two thirds chance I'd be wearing. For me, you know, in the most like simple of ways. So basically I got, what the story says was when I was a kid, probably around, you know, 11 years old, I got sick. I had colitis. Um, this was sort of a, a many year journey from, you know, feeling ill to like full on getting my colon cut out and having a, you know, a colostomy bag for a while and like oh, medicated enemas and steroids and all kinds of like yeah. kind of nasty stuff. Th- that's bad, but almost like setting that aside, what that meant was I had a lot of time um, because I didn't go to school for a lot of this. Um, you can't go to school when you're in the hospital and you can't go to school when you're recovering from, you know, pretty bad surgery. Mm-hmm. So with that time, and this is the, you know, the early to mid nineties, I I just, I listened to a lot of music like any kid and I watched a lot of MTV. And then I, you know, I started to find out, do you remember maybe like the 94, 95 Lollapalooza was like pavement, Nirvana, hole, you know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I was actually watching a bunch of old YouTube videos of that and also found my way into watching like old Green Day videos and was like, what the green day is incredible. <laughs> right. I was like, why did I forget? <laughs> and like all of that stuff. Right. And then green day, when um, Kerplunk came out, there was a lot of arguments. Like, did they sell out? Cause it was on Interscope and they had yeah. out records and, you know, and it was this whole kind of like this major hubbub about kind of like, you know, not nothing, but that was when I got interested in music. Um, you know, like everybody liked green day. It wasn't that hard to go a step further. And if you have all the time in the world and you're kind of curious, you can go to, you know, Barnes and Noble and buy Maximum Rock and Roll or buy a book about punk. Um, There is a book which I would still recommend anybody buy, use, that was like the spin guide to alternative music from the mid 90s. Totally my Bible. Um, It's just, it's like a reference book. It's got the, like this hideous orange cover. I think you can probably buy it for like $3 on, you know, used on eBay. Um, and I would just read about all this music. One of the things that happened in the pre-streaming world as well was, you know, pre-YouTube, pre, you know, you, you couldn't hear most of it. 
because um, you had to get the for me the tape in that or the tape of the record this is before i was buying cds so i just imagined what a lot of the stuff sound like from reading about it and most things if you never hear it and you just read about it are way more violent and exciting than they actually end up being when you listen to them so i kind of built up this world of music without hearing a lot of it so because you you didn't have access to the music right i mean and because you're at home there's no record store you can go to you can't youtube doesn't exist you can't just like go and find stuff were you was there like did you have the internet at the time no this was before maybe it was maybe like i think maybe i had aol around this time like yeah. start but we're talking this is like 94 so yeah so the, the keywords didn't exist yet for it <laughs> this was not like AOL was the internet. I don't know if you remember there was that divide. Like I didn't know what the internet was. I just knew that there was AOL. I knew that there was chat rooms. Right. Um, but I would just get mag, like I would buy magazines or fanzines and then I would order other ones. Um, and I would go to the, to the store. There was an HMV in the, uh, in the suburbs near where I lived and I would special order stuff that I would read about in the magazines. So I would take my bar mitzvah money, you know, and like, you know, spend $20 once a month and get two tapes. And so right. I did hear a few more things, but mostly I was reading about it because I was just buying more books. Uh, Wait, as in, if you're reading about these things and you're actually not hearing the music, what was it about all this that was so alluring? It was like an escape. You know, I mean, I think that's a lot of what music can be is, um, it, I think it can be a little bit of fantasy, um, mm. especially if you're not hearing it. I remember reading this review, you know, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. Remember this is like, yeah, like uh, Lydia Lynch's group. And it was a review of, um, I think of maybe an anthology CD that they had had in Flipside magazine and reading it. And I was like, that sounds like the craziest music I've ever heard. You know, like these people don't know how to play their instruments and they're just yelling and they're hitting the guitar, you know, and I was like, this is awesome. And I mean, I don't think I heard that band for 20 years after. And then when you hear it, you're like, this is actually fairly organized. <laughs> but it was cool to imagine that there was a sort of freeform world, you know, of Cro-Magnon people out there making all of this like fucked up sound. And, you know, meanwhile, I was kind of just stuck in my bedroom. So I liked that, that freedom. And then slowly you'd find there were actually sat things, bands that did sound like that. And once I kind of got into the habit of ordering records and when my mom said, okay, yeah, sure. Like I'll pick up the phone and order this for you on my credit card. When they, when I started getting really sick and they got kind of felt, <laughs> felt especially bad, oh, uh, I got to hear a lot more stuff. So, yeah. What, what was like, if you think of the record and the records that really changed you at that time, Ooh. what was it? Well, definitely damaged the black flag album, which I was talking about a little bit in this piece, mm -hmm. um, but there was this band, <laughs> I mean, I'm still very loyal to this band. I almost feel silly saying it out loud. Uh, but there was this band called Man is the Bastard. Um, do you know Man is the Bastard? No, no. So Man is the Bastard is a band that was in um, the genre of music, which is one word called power violence. Uh, okay. <laughs> of course. Given as a, a like a joking moniker yeah. for this like genre of music that was mostly from California, kind of bass heavy, like chunky hardcore, um, but like with a, uh, with an almost proggy edge, uh, mm -hmm. kind of like the Cookie Monster, not a full like gurgle death metal vocals, but definitely with like, uh, uh, um, and Man is the Bastard was super political. Um, they had two bass players, no guitar, a guy who played noise, <laughs> uh, the drummer and they had um they had an amazing iconography which was these two skulls uh, and you know they had an album which was incredible just called thoughtless and they had songs about vivisection and then there was a song i was obsessed with that was called tyke which if you google um you can put this in the notes I guess. yeah yeah <laughs> If you Google Tyke the Elephant, you'll find Tyke was an elephant in a circus who at a parade was like no more, broke free and like crushed her trainers to death. Um, and so they had this song that was like a tribute to Tyke. Um, it was like 
you know, she freaked out and took revenge. Here for our amusement within this bass riff. Boom, 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 boom. A performance of just desserts. Boom, 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 boom. Reeking of alternate, ultimate irony. Boom, 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 boom. An elephant never forgets. You know, like. Holy shit. I was like, holy shit. That's so dark. And then the other side, the entire lyrics uh, were just taken from Howl by Allen Ginsberg. Okay. But I didn't know that. Um, and it was the kind of Malak section of Howl. Um, you know, reeking of trash cans and ultimate ironies. Malak, Malak, nightmare of Malak, which is an incredible piece of writing, but is way more incredible if you are 12 years old and think that some guy in Man is the Bastard wrote it. <laughs> yeah. So I got totally obsessed with this. A couple years later, I found out that Allen Ginsberg had written it, but they were just like a completely transformational band for me. Um, I listen to them all the time. So, Did you ever have a band that you pretended you liked because you had met some people and they were all into them? I know. I wish. I, there's no one who liked any of this stuff in Farmington, Connecticut. Yeah. I made friends with one kid who did, who like kind of sucks, but it didn't matter because he would be happy to come over to my house and listen to these records. Um, and then like, sometimes I would try to bring friends to shows when I got to be a little bit older, but they didn't, no one was, no one was interested in going to like check out disembodied with me. Right. Well, so, so music starts for you super early as this kind of way to, it sounds like a skate, but really to identify and like build who you are throughout all of these unfortunate events that are going on with you and your health. But I mean, it, obviously you improved and you got better, yep. but music never went away. No, I think it, it didn't. And I think, I mean, that's, I'm glad that that's the case. I think you'd find that's the case for most people who get interested in, you know, in music when they're, um, you know, when they're young and their teenage years, not everybody, but it really, if it helped shape who you are, you know, the chances are like, you're still, you still are that person just as an adult, you know, especially I think for people who are interested in hardcore, even if they haven't continued being interested in underground music as they've grown. Um, I think those foundations of, you know, the DI, the kind of DIY ethos for people, once you right. sort of know that it exists, it's like pulling back some kind of curtain and you kind of are like, Oh, I just want to be in that world. Does that sound ring right to you? Do you feel like that's, I mean, look, we're sitting at a podcast that you're doing yourself, which you're going to edit yourself, you know, like. No, no, I mean, yeah, it's, I definitely agree with that. It's, um, it's, it's just kind of fascinating to me about, you know, how micro these things are. But I think in a weird way, if, if I meet someone else who likes a band and I feel like it's really only like this with music and correct me if I'm wrong, right? if I meet someone else who likes this band or knows that song and it was important to them at a certain point of their life, I feel like I understand 500 other things about their life, even though I just met them. Yeah. I agree with that. It's uh, like a code word. Yeah. It, it's, you know, cause I mean, but there was also a time cause I remember as I had finally started to like get the internet and go to message boards and punk sites and all those things. Cause I was, in most cases, I was too young and my parents wouldn't let me go to some of these shows. But, um, you know, I remember someone was trying to tell me about Genesis P. Orridge and like Psychic TV. And I basically lied and pretended I knew about it so I could try to identify them. And they were talking to me about all this stuff. And then weirdly, later, way, way, way later, I'm in New York and Genesis P. Orridge is at the Guggenheim getting interviewed for some vice thing by like Sean Marshall of cat power. So yeah, that that's oh, a whole other happened when you, when you, when you were faking that you knew who Genesis Peorge was. Yeah. Um, that happened. Oh, how old was I? Um, yeah. 13, 12. Oh my God. Why, why in the world would you know who Genesis Peorge was when you were 13 years old? Well, who was the other 13 year old that knew who Genesis Peorge was? I don't know, but he, I don't actually, I don't know. I, I'd have to log on to Facebook to see what he's up to. Yeah. That kid's, that kid's got a lot happening. All right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So how did you work your way towards doing this as a career? Um, so <laughs> I mean, cause you go to school, I went to college and totally lost my mind. I was so excited, you know, m met a million people that liked music, um, you know, made some lifelong friends who were musicians 
um, started to kind of write a little bit about music when I was in class. Um, and then I got really interested in, um, I mean, I'd always liked buying records cause that's how I could hear music, but I got interested in like re- collecting records and then in DJing. Um, and what year is this? If you don't mind, uh, 2001. Okay. And so I was, I started to post on a message board called Soulstruck. I didn't know this is when kind of music opened up to me kind of past and underground hardcore and punk world. Um, I got interested in jazz. I heard free jazz and was like, Oh my God, that's the, that's the most hardcore music that there exists. Um, And, you know, got interested in, you know, in in soul and just kind of normal things that people get interested in when they start to kind of discover um, more greater music history, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, avant-garde classical music, whatever. And so I started to post on this message board and read about music. It was kind of more kind of funk and soul oriented. um, But it was also just generally people talking about going and digging around and looking for records. Um, I would write the same kind of shit that I write now, which is like, I listened to this record and it made me feel emotional. Like the same kind (laughs) of crap. Um, But in a way that like, you know, a 21 year old or 20 year old would, would write that in this sort of like completely, totally free gobbledygook kind of way. Um, And I became friends with a guy uh, named Nick Cashdubs, who was a DJ and was then uh, became the an editor at the fader. Um, So, they had an open position and he liked my writing and he suggested I come and interview for it right when I graduated college. Um, Which by the way, the time the fader is the, the best. So I was obsessed with the fader. The fader magazine was like this Bible. This is really before blogs or right around the time blogs are starting. Agreed. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, it's, it, this was more like a live journal kind of time, less, <laughs> less of like a MP3 blog. Um, but I'm obsessed with this magazine, which is blending dance hall and hip hop and rock uh, and, you know, and fashion. It's just like the coolest thing you've ever seen. Uh, you know, there was an issue that had, had like um, Tego Calderon and Beanie Man on one side of the cover and then Rick Rubin on the other. And, you know, this is just like m- totally melting my brain. So I go in for a job interview and um, do not get the job, Um, but stayed in touch with them for a couple of years and would send them pitches um, and write stuff. And then I started. Why would you send them pitches if you didn't get the job? I was obsessed. I mean, it's sort of like if, if like you love chocolate and like you don't get a job at like the Hershey's Kiss factory, like do you not eat? Hershey's after that? I don't know. You know, uh, I mean, maybe, I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, I didn't get the job cause I was like wildly unqualified. Um, you know, I had never done anything. Um, Chris Ryan got that job. Um, and like <laughs> he's done well for himself. Um, you know, like they, they chose correctly. Um, so, you know, I spent the next couple of years kind of learning. Uh, and so I wrote freelance for them and a few other places and I wrote some zines. Um, but see, the thing that I more was kind of calling attention to is the fact that you didn't really give up on this. It, it was, oh yeah. it's, it's not like you're like, oh, okay, well they said, no, there's no point. I shouldn't do this. I should walk away. I should funnel my energy into something else. It sounds like you're like, okay, cool. I didn't get it. It looks like that's fine, but I'm going to find a way. <clears throat> I just think that that's, I'm always very um, encouraged and inspired by people who, um, when they communicate a, uh, for lack of a better term, like a failure or a rejection, they communicate it as something that like, that was a very simple and normal thing, but I kept going versus I think some people, and maybe this is how you were raised. I have no idea, but like, you're just like, yeah, they wouldn't, they didn't take it, but I kept going. I mean, and eventually you're, then you're fucking running the fader. Well, my expectation (laughs) is never that things are going to work out. Um, I am not an optimist. Um, and, you know, I think that the kind of two pillars of my life have been sort of like, you know, personal pain, you know, phys- a lot of physical pain and, you know, some mental pain that came with it and, and privilege, um, you know, as you said, like privilege, certainly from like, um, you know, being a white, straight white male and, and you know, and then yeah. later in my life, 
um, or at least like, you know, I was growing up in economic privilege. Um, and I, I, I always had some kind of funny way of, of squaring those two things, which is, um, you know, I, I was always hyper aware actually of the privilege that I had. Um, and then also was, you know, felt like shit all the time. Um, and, <laughs> um, so when I didn't get a job or an opportunity didn't work out, it seemed like, you know, of course it wouldn't. Um, but I'm just going to continue to try again. Um, cause I, you know, because I can, I guess. Um, and I was, I think I was lucky enough to have a somewhat, I mean, maybe this is a simple answer. I didn't like anything else aside from music and writing about music. I didn't know anything else aside from that. I didn't, you know, nobody gives you a job doing that, but I became fairly determined to get a job doing that after I learned that that was even a possibility. I didn't, I, before I graduated college, I didn't even know what an editor was. Um, so when it became clear that like, oh, there are some people who make a living doing this, I was like, okay, if it's going to take me two years of freelancing and sending these people, you know, friendly emails to remind them that I exist, I'll just take that time um, and, and do it. I mean, in, in the meantime, I had a, you know, couple of not very cool <laughs> jobs, um, uh, you know, making, you know, a small amount of money, um, but enough that I could do them and then go home at 5 p.m. and then spend my time writing. Uh, yeah. How are you improving on writing? Because as just as an aside, I I personally, I think that like writing about music is, I think, one of the highest forms of critique because there's so much emotion within music and like the art that comes up from it. So like, you know, so today I wrote this story that was about my own childhood and about music, you know? I mean, it's about how Henry Rollins was an icon to me uh, and how I decided to give my kid that name. And in this story, I talk about a bunch of kind of raw stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, I read it a few times. And it's like some personal stuff. And if I had written that story when I was, you know, 25, um, it would have seemed kind of more um, sensationalist or more like kind of in your face or more like, look at this thing, you know, um, for a while. Hey, the culture or just you as a writer? My writing would have been more like, you know, over time, you know, you kind of learn. If you look at, look, my, my job for the last dozen years has just been like looking at words. So if you just kind of <laughs> do it a lot, I mean, it's like the what's, you know, like, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Like, you know, like, whatever, practice, practice, practice. Like, it's not <laughs> so far away. I mean, how do you get laid off, I guess? Like, practice, practice, practice. Like, um, <laughs> but, you know, you look at, I, I've been, I've been editing for a long time. So if you just spend eight hours a day looking at that copy, you get kind of a feel for, um, for writing. And so now I feel like my writing, whereas it used to be super spastic, is now actually really controlled. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it actually has allowed me to talk about either sillier things, more personal things, things where the subject matter is slightly more ridiculous because the language usually is not. Um, so that's kind of where I feel like I'm at as a writer right now. So I feel kind of ready and interested to kind of like get a little bit weirder because the, uh, the platform that I'll use will probably be pretty normal. Yeah. What do you mean by normal? I use like, I don't always use a ton of cliches, but like, I like cliches. Um, I don't use a lot of like, you know, 10 cent words really. Like I just kind of, just kind of like write pretty plainly. Um, you know, I usually write in linear order. Um, you know, I don't mm -hmm. do a lot of fancy stuff. It's just I like, mean, I went and I reread maybe 15 or 20 of some of your, some of the last stuff that you've done from GQ okay. to pitchfork stuff to reviews of pitchfork. And, um, I say this complimentary, but like your writing style, um, 
it feels very inviting and like doesn't talk down to you. Oh, thanks. Um, I, you know, it reminds me a lot of like Caramonica, like John Caramonica, who's I love and adore. I love how he writes about music because the thing about music and what we were talking about, especially with punk rock, like it's this cool kid club. And in order to be in this club, you have to understand it. But depending on who you're talking to, they may not want you to understand it. Yeah. And the thing that I've always gathered from a lot of your writing is that there's so much enthusiasm in it, but it's not like banging over your head and it it feels like you're letting me know the secret code so I can get into it too. That's, I mean, I, I mean, that's an enormous compliment. So I really appreciate that. Like, thank you. Sure. Like yeah. the fact that you've noticed that and that you think that is, is, you know, means, means a lot. And like, I'm, I'm proud to hear that that comes through. I think, as someone, you know, who is an, an editor, I think, you know, if we can talk, I guess, specifically Pitchfork and, and Fader are kind of like the two big pillars, I guess, of my career, but Pitchfork specifically just has such a big audience. Um, and when I started there, um, one of the things that I wanted to make sure happened was to, um, I mean, of course, just out of interest, like, obviously you want to reach, we want to grow the audience. Um, because the mm-hmm. importance was there, but we want we feel like it felt like it still hasn't met its potential, and maybe in some ways still hasn't. Um, but I felt like in order to do that, the the just the tone, the voice of the of the publication needed to change a bit. Because, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience at Pitchfork, and you know, sometimes you'd go click on a review and read a paragraph, and there would be like seventeen proper nouns of things that you have never heard of. Um, and I don't expect when I'm kind of like, are you familiar with the West Coast power violence band, uh, Man is the Bastard? <laughs> Kenyon Wood, when he plays the double neck guitar, like, where, you know, it's just like nobody knows what that means. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's our jobs as the experts to know what that means, but we're not just talking to other experts. That's not, it's not a trade publication, you know? Like, <laughs> That's uh, true. You're not left sets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> thankfully. Um, and so we set about kind of looking to see uh, how do we broaden what we talked about so that we were talking about as much music as we could. Um, and how do we make it so all those things live on the same plane um, so that you can, um, you can read about, you know, Jay Balvin at the same time you're reading about Kaduro music, the same mm-hmm. time you're reading about, um, you know, Bill Callahan or Wilco, you know, or Beyonce and all of those things would use a language, which is, um, you know, helpful to a reader. Um, you know, in the same way, like, you know, look like when you look at GQ, you know, or you look at a, a you know, a magazine, a women's magazine, you know, with service journalism, it says like, mm. I wanted the feeling that when you would read a magazine and say, you know, how do I outbid somebody on eBay? How do I you know, make a hat fit better? How do I, you know, uh, change the oil in my car? All of these things that traditionally journalism would do for you, I really felt that, you know, criticism could do the same. Um, you know, that, that, you know, writing, you know, writing about music that, um, you know, at interviews about music, they could do the same. You know, criticism specifically, I think, could help you figure out what you thought about something. And, and mm. I think, you know, in the same way, after I watch a movie, usually I go and I read a couple of reviews of it. Uh, sometimes that changes what I thought about it. And that's a useful tool. I don't think that's so different than being like, you know, oh, finding out that this record actually references this other thing or finding out that somebody says, you know, the way that guy plays bass is stupid. He could play it way better. Or, you know, have you checked out their other album? Or even being like, you know what, if I was laying on the moon in the middle of fucking summertime and staring off into the earth, that's what it feels like when I listen to this techno album. Like, you know, as hokey as stuff, stuff like that can be, it can help put you in the right place to understand that piece of art. Um, so I think that that meant more than being like, um, you know, this guy was in this band that sounded like this band, but they didn't like that band. So they ended up making a thing that sounds like this band, which is what a lot of <laughs> music journalism and insider stuff ends up sounding like. Uh, yeah. And if 
it just would leave people lost. I became extremely interested in making sure that the tone of Pitchfork was as inviting as possible. Yeah. I, I don't think that we succeeded uh, at all times, but it was certainly a goal. And then in my own writing, that became like more than just a, um, like that became just like the, the need, not a goal, you know? Um, you know, my old coworker today texted me. She was like, I don't know anything about Henry Rollins. I was like, dude, you, you don't need to know anything about Henry Rollins. You can still like read this. It's fine. <laughs> you know, like you don't, I'll explain to you the four necessary things, you know, that you need to know in order to get this, but like, you can, you should be able to come in blank. Yeah. Well, I think especially with music, which is, you know, God, it sounds so tacky for me to say this, but it's like, it's so vast. It's, there's so much the thing behind the thing of albums and movements and the cultural significance of some of those things. And being able to demystify that is, I think, an extremely difficult thing, especially when you're at Pitchfork where, I mean, I'll say this, the original tone of it felt like a very insider's insider's club which you know which was fine i guess because that's what so much of at least the type of music that was originally being reviewed on it was about like indie stuff is only cool to the only five other dudes who are into it you know like and (laughs) and so you know like with that stuff that you covered but i you know the the question i kind of keep coming back to especially after reading your piece today was it almost was like how much of your writing over the years has really been you trying to pay back the gratitude that you might've felt as like being accepted with all the stuff that you had. I certainly feel a lot of gratitude towards music in general, as I think many people do, you know, last night a DJ saved my life, like punk rock saved my life. Like, you know, you can hear these kinds of, um, you know, this sort of, you know, throw your hands up in ecstasy, you know, gratitude to music from all kinds of people. You know, I'm one of a million people that are, that are like that. Um, I think that I have found that I think despite being a pessimist, most people also like being excited. Most people like seeing a movie they like most people like hearing music they like most people like comfort is what it sounds like you're saying yeah if i'm the person who likes looking and finding out about new stuff and then somebody else can just if i can be the conduit for them because i sifted through 10 million (laughs) things um then great you know them i'm happy to help them get into that what I find is often the case is the people who like the experimental new whatever stuff end up feeling, you know, like that thing should be enclosed. For me, I was like, how do I get that thing to be at the, on the same level as, as the most popular stuff? So there's a couple of moments at Pitchfork where, and again, most of my work was as an editor, not necessarily as a writer, but, um, you know, there is, for example, um, a record <laughs> by a duo called Rap, uh, R-A-P. And this was just a random record that I have found. I, you know, I, I follow a lot of labels and things on the service Bandcamp, which is excellent. I hope everybody here who's listening has a Bandcamp profile and is buying, buying music on Bandcamp. But, you know, you get an email every time a label or a band that you follow has a new release. And so I got a, a, an email from Jolly Discs that there's a new release, this record by Rap, and it's called Export. And I listened to it, and I was completely floored by this album. And I started a sort of small campaign to get everybody else in the office interested in this album. Everybody else at Pitchfork to get interested in this album. How did you do that? Um, a lot of Slack messages. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, please listen to this. I mean, yeah. at one point I remember I tweeted, I was just like, someone please listen to this album. You know, just like, this is good. You know, beyond the sort of soft suggestion to like, so- someone just listen to it. And sure enough, you know, people are open to listening to it. And, well, and your weight carries, or excuse me, your opinion carries a lot of weight. I'll say it. Go ahead. There are a lot of there are a lot of a lot of best, best new musics that never were. I would say that, uh, that that might disagree with you, but um, but that one I got people to get into. They all were like, "This is amazing." You're right. And we put it up on the site. Philip Sherburn reviewed the album, uh, and it was best new music. 
And I remember uh, Mark Richardson, who was previously the editor-in-chief uh, at, at Pitchfork, I remember him saying, this is the first record since he's gone that got Best New Music that he just never heard of. He had no idea. And I think most people had that same experience. They were like, who is this band? Nobody knows what this is. Um, and you guys are saying it's like amongst the best things of the year. And I was like, yeah, we are, because it is. Um, and it doesn't matter that it didn't come, you know, from the, some kind of, you know, major indie or major label or a bigger publicist or from somebody who was in a different band. And it was just kind of two, you know, unknown guys. It was, it was of the same caliber. And, mm. and so if we could put it on that same level, um, you know, we should. And we did. And a lot of people got interested in that record. Something that, you know, th- this was just as an aside, these were like some of the more serious questions I wanted to ask you about that in a weird way seem really light now, but please, I am always in awe of uh, music critics, but also people at like Pitchfork and, and things like that into which, you know, you've been in the industry for a while. You're not, you know, you have a lot of experience. You've, you've been through the gauntlet per se, but you're still finding ways to find the new stuff. How, like, what is the mindset and mentality that you keep in terms of like finding new music and being open to new music at all times versus what I think sometimes some critics can do and just get comfortable with the few bands or the few labels that they like? Um, you know, I once got criticized uh, for being too curious in my taste, like professionally. <laughs> I, I mean, makes zero sense, but that's it, fine. <laughs> it almost like hurt my feelings, honestly. Cause I was like, well, well how, like how, how could that be a negative? You know, but um, I have the same experience with, you know, I, I know music professionally, but I have the same experience with books or with, with music, you know, with books or with movies, um, you know, to a lesser degree, you know, like theater, which I know, you know, nothing about, but like, you know, every once in a while I'll try to experience if I can't, you know, sure. I like to find out about new stuff. It's exciting. You're living right now and all this stuff is happening. Like, why wouldn't you want to know about it? The internet also makes it exciting to do. Is that not your question? No, no, that is my question. But what is it that it's in your mind that makes you feel that these new bands deserve a chance? Oh, everybody deserves a chance, you know, like, I mean, sometimes I think one thing that I've found, though, um, is that one thing I found is as music media shrinks, you know, there are just less and less outlets. Mm -hmm. There are just less people who are going to do that kind of work. It's just not what everybody's specialty is. Um, Some of that's by necessity. You know, I'm not probably going to be the person um, who you're going to turn to be the first writer about the new Taylor Swift album, you know? There are a lot of people that do that and do it really well. And it's probably of more, you know, I think maybe I'm quoting this word, but like value than the ability to surface some, you know, super new, you know, like, you know, I'm going to recommend like the Jabu record with, you know, Daniela Dyson doing vocals on top of it right now, which is two like 20 minute songs, you know, which is absolutely gorgeous and ethereal. Um, And I, you know, I wish everyone in the world would go listen to this album. But I know that that's not going to happen. Um, more people are going to listen to the new Taylor Swift album or the new Rihanna record or the new Drake album. And is I this like the that. comfort stuff kicking in? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I think some of it is the feedback loop. You know, if you continue to talk about the thing and social media obviously amplifies that because if you're important and then you say something, you post a picture, you then you that dialogue continues day after day after day. I mean, it's like, the idea that, um, you know, CNN or Fox or, you know, I, I forget who was talking about this somewhere, but you have to, you have to invent news to be a 24 hour news network. The internet is kind of <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, there isn't that much. Um, so you kind of keep talking about the same people. Um, you know, every time Kanye sneezes, it's news. And I get that. I think that that made sense. And that's always sort of been my policy. These people are icons and so if an icon does a thing, it's, you know, pretty automatically iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to know about it. You just do. I get that. But I've also wanted to be able to kind of be a person who um, would bring these things to the surface that just, I think other people, you know, just didn't maybe have the the time or desire for. Sometimes people would come to me, you know, I would hear, you know, how do you find stuff like this? 
someone asked me to make a, a playlist of jazz pianists for them recently. Hmm. Who, who is on it? Just um, on the top of your head. You know, Art Tatum and um, Richard Mohal Abrams and uh, Bud Powell, Herbie Hancock, yeah. Mary Williams, Nina Simone. Okay. Um, you know, so I made this playlist that probably, you know, got to about an hour and a half. And then I was like, who else should I put on it? And then I was like, why don't I Google jazz pianist to jog my memory? <laughs> and then I was like, oh, yeah, Stanley Cowell. Act, yeah, he's cool. Sure. Stanley Cowell. And I realized I was like, this guy probably could have Googled this himself, you know, uh, and made himself a playlist but he, he didn't he didn't think to i don't know why he didn't you know uh, i can't answer that question for you Tell me. yeah please because he wants matt schnipper's picks no 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 i think like i mean it's nice but i i think that just it's okay I, I think you you have to sit in the uncomfortable feeling of the fact that you've gotten to a point in your career that people view your expertise as a way to help them distill greatness and good music from the amount of noise that's out there i think that's i mean look that's a major compliment and i you know like this is a great therapy session for that reason you know (laughs) that way um uh, you know and it's funny i actually i had therapy this morning in this exact same room um well here you go yeah um but i i often find that 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 you know that interest in kind of devouring stuff is one that I have that other people don't necessarily. Um, and I, I, I don't know what, you know, what that is, what that kind of boundary, that what stops them from doing that. Um, but I have felt that if I have that, I might as well utilize it. Well, I mean, it's also, you know, and this is a thing where it's like, are you okay to be this part of someone's life? Right? Like, I mean, do you look at your profession as a noble one? And, and as a part of adding value to people's lives in the sense to where, okay, I'll put it this way. Like people will ask me like, Jeremy, what clothing brand should I get? Or what, what tailor should I get my jacket from? And I'm like, just go, there's there, every site on the internet that talks about clothes is going to tell you where to get your jacket from. But no, they want my opinion. And I have to be, I, you know, I'm, I'm very flattered by someone wanting my opinion of it. Um, if they did further research, they'd see that my opinion changes significantly all the time. However, um, <laughs> but like that's, that's what they wanted. And I think that that's the value of the, the tenure and your career as a critic is that I know I'm confident that you've heard all the stuff that I don't need to hear. And, but you've also heard all the stuff that I desperately need to hear that I haven't heard it yet. So I can I can have a far more enriched experience with the stuff you think I should listen to to better my life than it taking me, you know, 20 years to get there. Yeah, I mean, I have that same experience with, you know, specific, you know, mostly with film critics, you know, because that's the thing that like, sure. you know, I will, what did Manola Dargis like, you know, and so then I will go through and what are all the, what's, what movies did she say were the best ones of 2019? And I'll go through all of them slowly and watch them. So I, I do understand that as well. Um, um, well, no, I mean, I was going to say, I think that's the, I hope you take some of this stuff and this kind of leads me as we start to wrap up to where you're at this point now where, you know, the world's kind of your oyster in the fact that you've, you've been at all of these incredible publications. Um, and I would say that like, it doesn't seem like those publications and those jobs that you have 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 changed you more than you've changed them. So you're at a point now where it's like, what are the next things that you want to try to do with this? Well, I think I'm, I mean, uh, I don't feel like the world is my oyster. I think I'm totally terrified. Um, you know, Normal. I, think I did not, um, I think I was good at my job. Uh, and I didn't expect to get laid off. I've been fired before. And while I didn't necessarily in, like that, um, it made some sort of sense. You know, you could logically say why that happened. Mm-hmm. Now, if I look at this, the, 
where things are at and, you know, why layoffs happened, you know, in the time of coronavirus and why did I lose my job versus, you know, why did that happen? You, you can kind of like reason it out uh, and kind of, you know, say, okay. But in your kind of like, you know, your, your, your primal level, you kind of just go, fuck, fuck, you know? Uh, yeah. And at this point, you know, you know, I worked at the fader a long time ago and I'm super proud of my time there, but you know, the fader went through some pretty heavy, not very good times last year um, after hiring an editor in chief who had basically been a sexual predator and the publisher who had enabled that, you know, who, I, who was my boss when I was there was kind of forced out. Um, and I don't know what's happening at that publication now, you know, spin, which was a magazine that I read when I was, you know, when I was a kid is digital only. And now has changed hands a hundred times, you know, they're just less and less places to, to, you know, to do this stuff. You know, I pitched an interview to a publication that I do like a lot. And they said, you know, we want you to do this interview. We can pay you a very small amount. And I said, could you pay me a little bit more? Um, and they just said, no, we, we don't have the money. And, you know, that's an independently owned place. And I, I didn't blame them. You know, I was like, you know, you, you don't. So, I, you know, and I, I said, I, I don't want to do it because I don't want to transcribe it and deal with it for that little amount of money. It's not worth it for me right now. Um, you know, when I could just be hanging out with my son, I was, it's, it's fine, but there are just less of those places that exist. And so while I know that I will continue to write about stuff, you know, I was talking, my wife does pottery. She loves pottery. She became like a pretty excellent potter. She was obsessed with watching Instagram videos of people doing pottery for like a year. <laughs> Finally for, uh, for the holidays, a couple of years ago, I bought her like a, a semester of classes at this pottery studio and she's been going for a couple of years and now she's like, she's a pretty meticulous person. And so like, it's, she's very good at it. She makes this like very beautiful, like very, um, you know, robust and round and, you know, beautifully glazed and simple pottery. Um, you know, I have jars and pitchers and bowls and all kinds of stuff on her. It's, it's incredible. And day to day she goes and works at Nike, you know, like I don't, I don't think she's like pivoting to pottery, you know, like she's going to keep having a job. I don't know that the media is, is out there and I don't know that it needs or wants somebody like me necessarily at this point. I know that there is a need for that Taylor Swift person we were talking about. And I think that that makes sense. Now, can I do that thinking about how that should work as an editor? Yes. I mean, I was good at that. There's a lot of things that are on Pitchfork that, you know, either were my idea or I helped mold that you would never know. And that's what I like doing. You know, I like kind of coming at it from behind the scenes. But either people don't know that or it's just not as important as the person who's going to do it. You know, and so now I'm feeling like, you know, my writing I feel happy enough about. Uh, and maybe it'll just be my pottery. I don't know. You know, the thing that I like is working with people. Um, that's what I got to be good at. Um, you know, if you're an editor for long enough, you help kind of put together a, you know, a small business is basically what it was like. And you run these, you know, you know, I'd come in and we'd have a meeting every day and I'd say like, well, here's the stupid thing I did last night. How's it going? What did Drake do today? What stupid thing did you do last night? Is everybody feel okay? How come? Can we help? Okay. This is what the day looks like. We're publishing this today. Oh, we're not. Cause there was a problem okay, you know, now it's 1040, everybody have a good day. Like that kind of basic stuff, that made me feel good that I could bring that to a place like Pitchfork and a place like Fader or, you know, and to some degree Virgin GQ as well when I worked at those places. But that's not specific to media, you know? So look, like, I mean, if anybody listening wants to like hear the craziest music at all times and wants me to tell you about like their my feelings about it and like, um, get you know bring you a lot of excitement and then like you know write about it please hire me like you know hit up jeremy for my phone number like i'm <laughs> you know um but if not you know I, I think i'll probably just do that in a you know a, a, a kind of more uh bespoke way okay here's my rebuttal first off thank you for the openness but my response to that is your response is fuck that. That's what it sounds like. <laughs> no, no. I because I, I think you've obviously thought about this a significant amount of time and I respect that. But I think 
there's also a part that um, maybe you're not looking at from the point of view of um, where culture is right now and wanting to connect with people over brands, right? Like with all due respect to Pitchfork, um, I don't really care about Pitchfork. I care about the specific people there, right? So I would read your reviews as I'm sure other people would read, you know, a person's reviews or B person's reviews because they want to know how they think about something and they want to know. And more importantly, be as, as this world has become this sort of noisy information overload, you know, overload machine. I want to connect with someone who has much more shared experience, right? I want you and I like the same punk rock song. Therefore I understand your childhood and I understand this and this and this. So if you tell me about this band, I automatically like that band. But if Pitchfork tells me about that band, I don't know if I like that band because I don't even know who that that guy that wrote it is. Mm. And that's, I feel like culture as a whole and like how people are consuming stuff is through empathy. And, and like the, the the empathetic connection is is this, is stronger than anything. In a weird way, that's why, you know, like I'll do a podcast about something and we'll talk about whatever and I'll get way more responses about far more intimate stuff than than like having a, a huge celebrity on or something like that because you people want this strong empathetic connection so if you're if you are saying like hey check out these albums check out this i'm not telling you to go start your own patreon if you want to go for it you want to start your own you know if you want to be like dan Frommer and do your own thing you could um, you could totally do it and be that for music easy uh and run laps around the majority of these companies if you want to do it um I don't know what to do. I think like one of the things is that I have a lot of patience for other people and like none for myself, you know, clearly. um, So I think that it's an interesting time to just be life is like both, you know, going extraordinarily fast and like totally on pause in this completely baffling way. And then on top of it, I have a baby and I'm just like, what the hell is happening? (laughs) It's just, it's kind of weird. so I don't know what's going to happen. And like, I really should kind of embrace that as opposed to be terrified by it. Um, that's all normal though. I mean, that's fine. It's, it's good that you feel that. And it's good that you're questioning that. Um, in some ways having too much confidence at this point of with everything that's going on would probably cause more people to worry than just admitting your own sort of powerlessness at the time. Never been my own never been my issue i think yeah well what is one of the last like bands or records that has seriously changed you that you feel like the rest of the world hasn't given a chance on yet so there's a guy whose name is akasha system and he has put out i think he put out three albums in the last you know in the last 12 months and he's a a producer from Portland and he has makes music that I just sort of like in shorthand called Portland techno. Cause there is a sort of small Portland techno scene as I became uh, aware of uh, that I became aware of. Uh, and his music, I mean, it sounds like what you would imagine a guy from Portland making techno sounds like, um, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, somebody who's probably spending as much time looking at his plants as he is on a dance floor. Um, so it's this music that seems to be influenced by house music, but kind of adjacent to that. All of the sounds are sort of round and like, uh, and warm. It's not, um, it's not very funky. Um, it, it's in some ways, it's not too self-serious, but it definitely isn't like, um, like playful. It, it's definitely like warm bath kind of music. Um, I find it to be really lovely. I think one of the things that's been interesting to me over time is how people who probably would have been in, you know, in indie bands, punk bands have really gravitated towards making electronic music now. Um, and, you know, be probably because of the ease and access of the, the, the instruments, the tools and distribution. And so he strikes me as a person like that, who is using a kind of homemade ethos for his music. Um, but it, he makes something that's like extraordinarily beautiful, uh, very soft, um, rhythmic, 
I mean, it certainly seems like something you could get a massage to, you know, if you were, you know, had a, you know, a, a slightly more excitable masseuse. Um, yeah. He has a, yeah. He put out, um, I think he put out an, uh, an, an album called Echo Earth at the end of last year. And the songs are called, you know, Rain Theme, Hawk Country. Oh, okay. Relics. You it, know, it, it's the, the Pro Tool session files became the song name. I'm loving it. You know, <laughs> like there's something that I really like. There's another artist who I've like been listening to a lot named John Beltran, who is a um, uh, a, tech, a longtime techno electronic musician from from East Lansing, and all of his songs. I was listening to them, and I was like, all of these songs have place names. It's like "Walking in the Rain" in Kyoto, like "On the Beach" in Bahia. You know, like um, you know, doing cartwheels in Tulum. Like it's I'm all like, oh god. Like, <laughs> And I was just, but I, he has so much music. So I was just exploring and he's made a lot of music out of like on a lot of different styles. And then I noticed he had a song called Nolita. And I was like, oh man, I was like, what is this? Like a sex in the city kind of like themes. And then I listened to it and it's a sort of like this, not qu- like not quite deep house. It's like medium house song, mm-hmm. like very lush. And it's got this kind of like some congas on it. I'm like, this is like extraordinarily beautiful. But I'm like, it's, I think like, are you cheesy if you mean it? You know, like if it, if you're earnest, are you cheesy? And I mean, the answer is probably yes, but I just gravitate towards that earnestness so much. And like the guy who's putting the album out, that's like, you know, you know, like listening to rain sticks, you know, in (laughs) Hancock or whatever. Like, it sounds like it's almost like Tim and Eric, but like, it's not like, this is like that dude is living that. And I love it. You know? I mean, if the music was bad, I wouldn't listen to it. But, like, it is very good. And I think being tinged with that, like, a little bit of that, like, a little bit of corn, you know? Like, I'm I'm good with it. He has yeah. one song from this other, pro- like, other project that I think the, I'm going to make sure I'm getting the name right. It's so bad. Um, he has a, pro- so John Beltran, this guy has a project called Placid Angles. And in 97, he put out an album called The Cry. And there's a song the best song on the album straight up is called casting shadows parenthesis on warm Sundays. And it's just like, Oh dude, like, come on. But then I was thinking about it. I was like, this dude probably wrote this song when there were shadows on a warm Sunday. You know, I bet he was like really inspired. You know, he's probably sitting there and there's some like Venetian blinds and like, it's coming through and he's like, wow, look at the way the light hits the bed. You know, like he's like, I want to make a really warm electronic song about that. And like, I want to feel like that. I don't mm. care if it's cheesy. It's nice. You know, like it, there's something that's really nice to just about just like, you know, not, not caring about, you know, who you are. And usually people who are like, oh, I don't care about who I am are like the coolest people ever. It's just like, nobody can judge me. And it's like, oh, you're Tyler, the creator. So like everyone is judging you and they're judging you like super positively because you're extremely cool. Yeah. Like casting war- shadows on warm Sundays is not cool you know but like he's doing it and like and he's feeling it and he's living his truth and like i am very much here for it interesting i think how you just communicated how much you love this stuff um and more importantly how others how other people should feel is is basically like why you're a good critic like right there i mean in the sense that because you're right i mean I listened to the last Tower of the Creator album and I, so many people told me that it was like the best album of the year. And from working at Beggars when Odd Future was signed and my experience with those guys, it I've never been that big of a fan based on how I interacted with them. And therefore, so that like, I'm just like, okay, Tyler is, yeah, he was kind of a weirdo. Sure, fine. I'm sure he's still a phenomenal musician and an amazing artist, but like that stuff just doesn't resonate with me. But for some reason going back to like, yeah, like just like weird bizarro things that somehow pop up on my Spotify or the stuff that my little brother listened to last week, or, you know, like all of a sudden I got into Alex G for like a week and I was like, Oh damn it. And it was just like, this is so good. <laughs> yeah, great. I think Tyler the creator is great. I think like, I'm certainly not, what I mean is that like, I'm not anti Tower the Creator. I'm it just seems, I mean, yeah. I should, like I don't know what Tyler the Creator's experience is. I feel like for a lot of people, if you're extremely cool, 
it's easy to be yourself. You know, like if you're a huge dork, it's not as easy to be yourself sometimes, you know? Um, You know, and like a lot of people obviously struggle to get to the point where they feel like they are very cool. And some of that comes from like being the huge dork in the first place. But like, dude, casting shadows on warm Sundays, like (laughs) turned into anything cool, you know, like it's not cool. Like the music is great. Like, and if he called it like, you know, like, you know, I'm sure if he called it like song B17, you know, he called it something super weird. Like, you might be like, oh, sick, you know, like, you know, like, but it's, it's not like it, he's telegraphing it. Like that song is like, it, it's some shit you probably could hear at Bed Bath and Beyond. Like, and you know, you can be like, this is amazing. If you want to pay attention to the details, you're like, oh, this is like, this is deep. But like, it really is just about kind of feeling good. Um, hmm. And I mean, feeling good, like on a holistic, like using all your chakras kind of feeling good, not just like in a like, you know, walking on sunshine kind of way. <laughs> Do you think that um, the coronavirus stuff is going to basically cause this like massive gap and black hole and recorded music? Or do you think that there's going to be this renaissance of music because of the emotional trauma people are experiencing right now? Oh, I mean, I, I'm never like thinking like, oh, music is going to be good or art is going to be good because of like bad stuff happening. I think like, I just think like I get sad about that because it's just like, there's just a lot of pain. Um, no, I mean, you know, the, the argument of the Renaissance is that it came from the dark ages, right? The, there was so much, it, there was so much inspiration. There was so much hope behind things that it pushed people to places they had never been before. Um, I think my answer is probably more like, you know, as I said, I'm a pessimist. My answer is probably more like, no, I think like, because a lot people are, just have a lot less money, resources, time, um, and uh and not just time but like time where they don't have to worry that i think that a lot of people who maybe would have had an opportunity to do stuff um can't you know like they just they don't have you know they they literally don't have the ability to do it and so i mean like do i think that like music is going to go away no like do i think good music is going to go away like no but i think that there are probably a lot of people for a lot of different reasons um many of them just economic are not going to be able to make uh the kind of art that they wish that they could right now matthew this was this was really really good this has been really really special like i mean it great i haven't talked to anybody who's not a four month old in like kind of a while so like you kind of really got in there you know You've been listening to Blammo. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We're edited by Brendan Finn and we're produced by Blammo Media. Follow along with us on Instagram at Blammo Podcast and leave a review for us on your favorite podcast app. Want even more Blammo? Head over to patreon.com forward slash Blammo to join the Blam fam. You'll get access to additional interviews, our community Slack, special events, and more. And best of all, you're supporting the show. Thanks again, everyone. We'll see you soon.